Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello and welcome to another podcast. Before we get started, one thing I would love for you to do, actually two things, I guess. Firstly, if you enjoy this podcast, share it on Instagram because those Instagram story shares are really just lovely. I love seeing them and also they're effective for getting the message out there about the podcast. The other thing I'd love for you to do is to ask me a question that we can play on the podcast and I can answer it as a podcast episode. And you can do that by going to speakpipe.com slash nickbenger. That's a really cool way of me being able to interact with you and answer your dog training questions and a good way for you to get some really specific advice to the situation that you're dealing with. But today is a really great podcast. This is one of my favorite podcasts I've recorded. It's well up there. It's with a lady called Kelly Snyder. And what Kelly did or is doing is she's right at the forefront of a particular way of dealing with aggressive dogs called constructional aggression treatment. She's got a book called Turning Fierce Dogs Friendly. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing about this, this method of dealing with aggressive dogs. So let's get into it. Hey Kelly, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good doing to be great. Here. <laughs> it's really good. It's a great opportunity to talk to you. Obviously, we're both really passionate about aggression and uh, helping dogs that have that issue. And I thought it'd be really fun to explore the topic of cat. And uh, I, I think it's inevitable in this podcast we're going to get a little bit geeky, just because it's kind of hard to and and i'm sure you've you've done a lot of it kelly but it's kind of hard to explore this topic without getting a little bit geeky or at least for me i really want to uh delve deep into it uh but just as a starting place for you know if you're explaining this to someone a a dog owner or someone right at the beginning what is uh cat um it stands for uh congressional uh, congressional constructional (laughs) aggression treatment um which let me try to be succinct i was going to go into the long definition um we can do that basically what we're looking at is um the conditions in which the aggression developed and so instead of giving the animal Um, a treat or something like that when it um, does something we like, we give it what it's actually working for, which is to get the other thing to go away. So um, when a dog behaves aggressively, it's not trying to tell you that it's hungry. It's not trying to tell you that it's tired. It's not wanting to play. It wants the other thing to get the hell out of here, right? And so um, we want to give it exactly what it needs and wants at that time. And in another, in a sense to tell it that we really get it, we understand what it needs and we're gonna provide that. Um, but the difference is um, we're only gonna provide that distance from the, you know, the scary person, the scary dog or whatever it is, we're only going to provide that when the dog behaves in a different way, in a more safer, 
and more um, socially acceptable way. Sure. And I guess for, for dog trainers uh, or those that have kind of learned a bit more about dog training, oftentimes when we're thinking about, because I guess really what we're talking about here really is fear aggression primarily, right? Because those tend to be, correct me if I'm wrong, but those tend to be the kind of dogs that are actually trying to make the trigger go away. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the majority of um, fear of aggression cases that most dog trainers and behaviorists get a hold of are fear aggression related. I mean, you do see things like prey aggression, which of course is not, <laughs> they want the opposite of distance. They want to sure. grab the, uh, the animal and kill it. Um, or there's play aggression where they've got some stimulus conditions mixed up and they think that behaving in a really rough way is the way to get play. That's a different category. But the vast majority of problematic um, uh, aggressive behavior is because there's an element of fear. Sure. Um, so even with even with like a fighting dog, when he was a little bitty puppy, and he was learning to be a fighting dog, it started out from a place of fear. So they're yeah. always trying to chase away or stop the other animal from causing harm. So uh, I, I guess our kind of uh, conventional viewpoint when it comes to trying to get a dog over their fear is by forming positive associations with the thing that they're scared of. And oftentimes we do that by, I would say, you know, 99% of people do that with associating the trigger with food, because that tends to be really convenient for us. Uh, we can give the dog food when they see the trigger. We can reduce the distance between the dog and the trigger and, and so on and so forth until we've got the dog over their fear. How does cat achieve that? Because uh, in looking at it, you're almost thinking, well, if we're not giving the dog something they enjoy, like food or a toy or something like that, how are we going to form that positive association? Well, going back to that basic definition, we're looking at um, what we refer to as functional behavior. So the reason the animal began to behave aggressively in the first place was because of the fear that we just talked about and because he or she wants the other animal to go away or give them space in some way. Um, when you, you can use counter conditioning and, um, um, and food treats to re you know, to try to change their minds about things. But it happens much more quickly if you just go into that functional reinforcer, which is distance. So mm -hmm. it doesn't have to do with anything concrete. There's nothing tangible in terms of giving them something. And that's a little bit tricky. It's, it's you know, I started out as a clicker trainer and so you're used to like giving, giving, whenever yeah. they do something right, be in tune to give, give, give. But in this case, it's like you have to be in tune, totally in tune to take yourself away or to take the other dog away. And when they see you or the other object, the other thing going away or stopping 
um, its movement or whatever it is that's irritating them, um, they get this set, I call it the whoo factor. It's like they just, it's like when you see something, you almost get hit by a car and you go, <sighs> it's kind of like that. That's the experience they have. They're like, oh, this thing came close to me. <gasps> it came, it went away. And so they figure out that every time they do something a little bit better, a little bit um calmer, a little bit um, friendlier, the other thing will go away. So that becomes a really big reward. Um, there is, it, it's very necessary to take that in bite-sized pieces. Of course, you're not going to get a dog to um, turn away or sit or look up at its owner when it's absolutely petrified. It's going to be too focused on the scary thing. So you have to arrange your training environment so that it's far enough away or doing, you know, doing something that's minimally stressful. So he's aware that it's there, but it's not overwhelming so that he can try other behaviors. So it's kind of, it's a shaping process where you allow them to try different behaviors until they figure out one that's going to work to make that other animal go away. Yeah, I, I think what would really help to illustrate this for people is if we could do, like, if we run through an imaginary case here, right, like, where everything just runs as smoothly as possible and we don't really have to make any adjustments at all which i know never really exists in the real world but but just for the sake of sake of illustrating this what would a, a typical maybe initial setup look like okay so what we often do um there's usually a lot of distance involved um but it varies from dog to dog so i might have one dog um, that I can get 10 feet away from without them doing anything. There might be another one. It really needs to be 100 feet, which can be a big challenge. So yeah. what we do at first is just figure out how far away we have to be from the dog um, for it to be aware of us, but not overwhelmed, not in the reaction zone. Um, and so we kind of, play with the environment a little bit. Um, whenever possible, it's important. Um, it's very valuable to set up the training environment somewhere that is significant to the family. So if this behavior is happening um, in their living room, it's ideal to work in their living room. If it's happening on walks on their street, do it in walks, you know, set up a, an environment on their street so that they're getting the whole big picture of, ah, oh, this is how I'm supposed to act when I'm in this situation. Um, so we kind of figure out all those things. Um, and then it, uh, it, there's quite a bit to look at um, in advance before you ever get started. So we ask questions like, um, which owner is around when this behavior happens? Does it happen with everybody? You know, no matter who's with him, does it matter happen only when the husband is handling him? Does it happen only when the grandma comes over? So you look at all those kinds of situations. Um, for example, if it always happens when the husband is 
handling the dog, then ideally the husband will be the main one involved in the training um, because we want that behavior to change as quickly as possible. Um, and then we have the owner, in the vast majority of cases, the owner um, is gonna be involved in the training in some way. Um, and then we have the, the helper dog or the helper person. If it's a human, I usually start with myself because I'm easier to control. There's <laughs> only one person I have to give information to and I can concentrate. Um, but I will go far enough away that the dog, like I said before, like that he can see me, um, he knows I'm there, but he's not too, too worried about it. Um, and then I start with the little, very minor approach, wait for the dog to do anything that's less aggressive. So if the dog is um, barking and lunging, I wait for his heat feet to hit the floor and hit the road. So at first you're just gonna take a little bite-sized piece, like anything you can get. And then as you progress, you're gonna wait for, okay, the last time his feet hit the floor, so I also want him to take a break in barking. And then I'll walk away. And then I'll, um, you know, I look for him to do a little bit more, like glance up at his owner, like, what's going on here? Why isn't she acting right? Why isn't she running away when I do this? Um, and you let the dog think, you let the dog figure it out. Um, you let them have the opportunity to sort out what they do that makes a difference so that they can learn that they have control over this situation. And because we kind of want to give them choices and control so that they feel, um, you know, empowered a little bit. So it's like, oh, if I don't freak out and let this, you know, and, and jump all over this stranger, um, good things happen and she backs off a little bit. Now, obviously this is during the training process because strangers aren't gonna know that routine, but you're gonna gradually build it up. Um, first, you're gonna work in controlled environments. You're gonna avoid having the dog um, out on the street with um, random strangers as much as possible until you get some of this foundation training done. And then you can um, uh, begin to set up different, different situations where you work with the dog so that it learns how to cooperate. And you also have to learn to be um, proactive with other people in the community, even friends in the household. It's um, if the dog is chilling in his crate, your friend cannot go over and um, talk to your dog in the crate. The friend has to stay over here and, and follow your rules with respect to sure, the dog sure. and that kind of thing. So you have to have that kind of, you know, just that kind of proactive um be on your dog's side to help them learn to uh, get through this situation. Okay. So uh, obviously we're, we're doing these setups where uh, we're, we're out and about and we're at that distance, hopefully where the dog is starting to pay attention. Is that right? They're, they're paying attention to the trigger, but hopefully they're not reacting, but I'm guessing that, I mean, with any kind of aggression work, usually there's times where unfortunately you do cross that boundary a little bit. And yeah. if you do at that point, where 
uh, were waiting, letting the dog have a, a bit of a reaction. But the moment that we see any kind of de-escalation, then we're... Oh, are we move? We're moving further away at that point. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So if you, because there will be times during your training. In an ideal world, you won't ever get to that point. If you, I mean, I have never had. I've never had a situation where there were absolutely zero. Yeah. Op, you know, situations where I went over the, um, went a little too far. Yeah. Um, but the goal is to not ever go to the point where the dog has to behave aggressively but when you do <laughs> the you kind of have to just cut your losses if, if the situation is safe and the dog is not just completely losing his mind then if you can just wait it out and wait like you said for a de-escalation or more specifically we look for anything that is not aggression it can be turning away turning the head turning the body looking at the owner um, snapping at a fly, um, whatever else they choose to do that is not aggression towards the helper is great. And then we walk away. Um, and so I, they start to figure out, I'm doing all these other things and she goes away. But when I bark and growl, that used to be what made her go away. And now she won't go away when I do that. So we're teaching him, um, it, you know, it's a, a discriminative stimulus. We're just like, oh, now I have to switch over to this other behavior to get the same thing to happen that used to happen when I was bad. Um, and so it takes practice, but it actually goes pretty quickly when they once they get that light bulb that, sure. oh, the rules have changed. We're doing it this way now. Yeah. So I, I'm so glad you said that about you know, in real life, we get reactions, right? Like, and, and, you know, you said, Hey, I've, I've never had it go perfectly all the way through and I haven't either. And I really think that's a really important thing to actually talk about because, um, I, I've seen people, uh, both online, I've seen people post up things on people's videos where it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe you let the dog react or whatever. It's like, if you work with dogs that have aggression, you get reactions. No one's no one's aiming for it, but it, it happens, unfortunately. So I think it's, it's really cool. It's what they know to do. It's what the dog knows to do. Sure. It's it's just yeah. what it is. It's nobody's nobody's wrong. It's just sure. yeah. the way it is. Yeah. So I think that's a really nice thing to talk about, you know. And and the other thing uh, I often get is I get dog owners that uh, get very emotional when their dog reacts, and they feel like. Uh, every time their dog reacts, they feel like, oh my, you know, all those feelings of failure come in and, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get through this because we were just doing so well and now my dog's reacted. And, you know, um, and actually it's, it's important, I think, for people to realize that uh, as much as we'd rather it wasn't, it is kind of part of the process. It, it will happen as we go through the training. So, yeah, yeah. And as an owner, I, I started out because I had a, an aggressive parrot. I didn't start out working with oh, wow. dogs. Um, but my most recent dog who recently died had, he was a um, Afghan Australian shepherd mix. So he had a lot of that herding stuff going on. Um, and we dealt with most of his, when he was a little puppy, I got him when he was about five months old and I started noticing some reactive behavior on walks. Fortunately, 
I knew what to do. And we were able to deal with most of it when he was a little guy instead of letting it build up. But still, even when he was an old guy, um, um, he'd get mad because the other dog walked too close to his food or something like that. And, and so you're still having to do a certain amount of management, like feed them in their crate, separate them for feeding and that kind of thing. Um, and so even with a dog that lives alone and you're meeting other dogs out in the world, you still have to be on your toes and be aware of what's going on and not put them into situations where they're going to make a mistake. So, um, you know, one difference again, between a kind of a a more traditional counter conditioning approach is right from the beginning with, with that kind of approach, you're thinking about, okay, I, I want my dog to actually have a positive association. I want them to be happy when they see other dogs. Um, with cat, obviously you're breaking the distance down. Um, but the dog is still being motivated by the fact that I say, I still want the, the person or the dog or whatever it is to go away. How do you make that leap from actually that being a, something the dog wants to actually getting to a point where the dog's like, Oh, I like people. I like dogs. Uh, you know, how, how do you make that leap? That's the fun part. That's the part. A lot of people do cat, but they stop too soon. Um, sometimes that's just because they don't have the opportunity or the setup to go all the way through. But when you're working this process, frankly, my favorite way to do it is to just book a whole day, tell the owner your mind for the day, bring a friend, you know, like so that I can set up the situation. But then you just work it through until the helper can get close enough to the dog that the dog without the dog responding in a problematic way, you can get close enough to the dog so that it starts kind of being curious and checking you out. So you'll see them sniff forward, like they'll like, who are you? And then back away. And so in a turn and they'll, they'll do that kind of thing. So you're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to, he's, he's checking me out. So I'm going to walk away. I'm going to reward that walking away. And then you build up bit by bit until he, his body remains soft and maybe even a little fluid and comes towards you and um, um, may try to sniff your hand. Now don't reach out to them or anything, but watch their body language. They may try to sniff your hand and you just wait and you walk away. You're still not close enough for them to, touch you and that you have them contained usually on a leash so that if they did decide to lunge, you're safe. Um, But usually by that time, you're in pretty good shape. You're reading their body language real clearly. You're learning them. You know, you know what kinds of things that individual dog is likely to do. And then um, you just gradually work up. And during this time, it's something we call it the switchover, which is basically the reinforcer switches from being taking away the helper to letting him interact with the helper. Um, even when he starts, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the I have an old video of a dog named Riley, um, but he starts coming closer. I think you can find that video on YouTube. Anyway, he, um, He comes closer, he licks my hand, and I still just walk away um, because he'd been pretty fierce at the beginning. 
Um, and then I, that at this point, I do bring out a treat because I want to see if he is calm enough to take the treat in a normal kind of way. Um, um, at first, I'll just drop it on the floor. Uh, later on, I'll offer it from my hand, assuming everything's going in the right direction. Everything's still improving. And then his attitude changes. And like with Riley, um, he hated my guts, but I came over like three weeks later to do a check to see how we were doing. And he was, oh, I remember you, you're still my friend. So um, it's, it's a switch. They switch from the, from the behavior being negatively reinforced to the behavior being positively reinforced. You don't push that switch over very quickly, though, because as you can see, if you misread something or the dog's not quite ready, somebody could get hurt. But um, basically, you still walk away when they do the right thing. But then over time, they start to see that you're a friend and you're cool and you're not going to hurt them. And then their attitude changes and you don't have to do that whole walking away thing every time. Yeah, that's so interesting because I kind of do something similar, but I've never really thought about it as being cat, but I guess it kind of is in that oftentimes I'll explain to people that when we're starting working with reactive dogs, the metric that we tend to focus on is distance, right? Like how far are we from the other dog? And then once we break it down to the dog's I'm thinking of dog to dog reactivity in my head, <laughs> but this applies to any trigger. Um, once we break it down to the point where the dogs are close, then the metric changes to duration. How long can oh, yeah. you spend ar around this dog? And um, I think it was Jean Donaldson that had uh, that I picked this up from. She calls it the three second rule, which is that generally not a lot can go wrong in three seconds. Or, or is less likely to go wrong in three seconds. And sometimes we might even go down to like one or two seconds, right? We really break it down. Uh, so we're allowing the dog to interact for a very, very short period of time. And then we're um, calling them away. And then we're gradually increasing that time as the dog gets used to it. Um, but it's just funny because that's kind of sounds similar to what you were describing there. And yeah, just... I think a lot of us are doing the same things, but in our industry we have a lot of capsules like you know you've got this trainer's school of thought and we got this trainer's school of thought and we have all of our the people that have taught us who have slightly different ways of doing things but i i think i mean what you're saying is yeah you it's it's part of the same process what? i think the big difference with um with cat is that you're looking at um, what does the animal really get out of behaving aggressively? What is the big thing the animal gets out of it? It gets you to go away or it gets you to stop doing what you're doing. So, you know, if a dog, um, when a dog has its first few aggressive episodes, maybe as a puppy or after something bad has happened to it or something. Um, it may start by growling. And if people ignore that, they may move on to barking or lunging or, or whatever, you know, that whole routine. Um, 
And if they um, get you to go away for doing that, of course, they're going to do that more often in the future, right? So if they know that, okay, growling usually doesn't work, but growling, barking, and lunging works. So I'm always going to growl, bark, and lunge when people approach me and they scare me. Um, Because that almost always works to get people to go away. So um, we just need to teach them that there are things that are less stressful that they can do to get the same results. And those less stressful things have to be things that are acceptable to humans. So because they live under our control and we have to, uh, I mean, I want to make them happy to the extent possible but they also have to live in a human culture. So, um, you know, when I've, when I've traveled, like traveling in South America, for example, you see a lot of dogs that are street dogs, just, you know, they're just, they live in the street, they beg, they uh, do their own dog thing. But you'll often see if a dog is in the street, doing whatever it's doing and it sees another dog that maybe it doesn't want to be around instead of engaging in a fight it can just walk the other way and that's usually what they'll do they'll usually choose to split up and go in a different direction our dogs don't have that choice they always have to face the the difficult situation because they're um they're in the they're on a leash or they're um, in a fence or in a house or whatever. They're, they don't have that big choice to walk away. So one of the things that cat kind of does is offers them the opportunity to perform behaviors um, until they find one that results in less stress. Yeah. So since yeah. they can't just walk away, they have to cho- they have to learn that oh i'm going to do my little version of walking away which is looking to the side or turning my body or sitting down or whatever it turns out to be yeah do you know what i i, I don't know the answer to this this is something that i thought about a little bit in the past where it's like in the uk we have a bit of a phenomenon at the moment of uh, and i'm sure you can probably have an equivalent but um we get a lot of dogs coming over from uh, countries like romania Right, where they've dogs have been straying a lot. Now, I make the assumption that that dogs in Romania don't just savage each other constantly, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but at the same time, right, I work with a lot of Romanian dogs that do have dog to dog issues. And to your point, say that uh, the dog was starting to react aggressively on the leash. If I dropped the leash. Right, I'm pretty sure the dog would still go and attack. So why why is that? Why why would we see this strange behavior change when they're free roaming on the streets to when we bring them over to this country? I think that it has to do. It's just it's stimulus conditions. It's like everything's different. I had this set of rules that worked. I suspect that the dogs I saw in South America would have gotten into a fight had they been in a place where they couldn't get away, had they been in a place where there wasn't enough food for everybody, if their puppies were nearby, that sort of thing. There were situations when they probably would have gotten into a fight that I didn't happen to see. Um, But then we take them from that environment where they've got 
my first choice is to get out of here. My second choice is to defend myself um, or to get you to get out of my face. But in the United States, anyway, everybody's most places have a leash law. So your dog has to be on a leash, um, except in certain places. Um, there aren't there aren't. Um, there are, we have dog parks, but they have their own set of problems. <laughs> so, um, so most dogs have, may have a backyard, but they're always on a leash. So I take a dog from Romania or Ecuador somewhere, and all of a sudden it doesn't have that choice of what else to do. It will, um, get the stress level increase they'll and they they have to figure out something to do in that context um i've worked with several meat market dogs from korea and they're a whole nother thing they're more like hoarding dogs because they're really shut down they don't trust people at all for good reason and um we take we bring them here everything's utterly terrifying to them um, because they don't have any of these social skills that work in, in the American environment. Um, and I think it's probably the same kind of thing. The social skills that they learn as street dogs or as whatever they were, were they street dogs in Romania? Yeah, yeah, Just I'm like assuming so. I, I haven't been to Romania, but I, w I would assume that we're just talking about straying dogs, you know? Yeah. So I would think that whatever situation they were in is just very different. And so they're more defensive and their adrenaline, adrenaline levels are probably higher. They don't have a foundation. They have a form of socialization from the street, wherever they came from, um, but it's to help them live in that environment. It's not to help them. They're not socialized to living with humans in the, you know, the industrialized world. That yeah, I, maybe it's, you know, um, you know, maybe I'm not fully understanding or maybe it's that the, the behaviorist perspective makes it, you know, maybe I'm looking at it with the wrong lens in the sense that because if we have, we take this dog you know, in Romania, it's off leash, it's around other dogs, don't have any issues. Uh, and then I bring, you know, I bring them over to the UK and we have an adjustment period when we're talking six months down the line. So it's not like the dog's really stressed out from that traveling. And But then if I were to let the dog off the lead in the park, then I would see aggression. And seemingly those two situations are not too dissimilar. It, I still think that there's a, I mean, I'm guessing because I'm not, I'm not seeing them and I don't know where they, you know, what their life was like before, but it is very different. It's a lot more controlled. You're wanting them to um, cooperate with you. They don't know these other dogs. Um, and, you know, I just think there's a lot of difference, even though it's probably very subtle or even impossible for us to discern what the difference is. Like, do you mean in in the the whole lifestyle of the dog, or do you mean in the micro situation that they're actually in? Because I guess I'm focusing on the situation in the park, whereas maybe you're talking about, hey, the, the dog's living in a house now, and they, you know, and they're being fed food. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm looking at the big picture, but it could be either, it, and it could be something that neither you nor I is 
aware of that they're aware of um i think a lot of it though is you know they're grown they're born as a puppy their mom says okay this is how we live on the street in romania this is the kind of stuff you got to do and everything goes well and then they get well presumably it doesn't go that well because they wouldn't need to be rescued if it did but um (laughs) well well you know i have a probably not real popular opinion but i think that a lot of animals a lot of dogs get rescued that really need to be rescued yeah i do i do agree with you kelly yeah i mean (laughs) we have spoken i've spoken about that on the podcast before about uh, yeah yeah we had a for anyone interested in that uh actually i had a a good conversation with clive Wynn about um you know some of some of the street dogs over there and I, i think anyone that's worked with a lot of dogs that have been imported has met dogs that would, you know, were, uh, their lives were worsened for having been taken to another country and forced to live in a home. Because I think that, and I'm not saying that's all dogs. Obviously, there's there's many. I've met so many dogs from uh, abroad that have adapted incredibly well and are better off. Um, so so I can just hear people getting angry about that already. <laughs> but um, uh, but but you know. I can't remember where I was going with that, but you know what I mean. It's uh, it's, it's something. Yeah, and that I, I totally agree. There are some dogs that get rescued from situations all over the world, and life is dramatically better for having been rescued. But I think, you know, just from like from my experiences in Ecuador, um, we knew people who were doing starting up some rescues there a number of years ago, and now apparently they do a lot, um, and it's basically just capturing street dogs and um, shipping them back to the United States. I don't know how much that's happening since COVID, but um, some of them have these kind of awesome lives. And if they could just get vaccinated, they would be fine. They live in this most beautiful country in the world with beautiful weather and um, um, they, hang out around the market and they have plenty of food to eat and um they look like they're in great shape and then americans save them and send them somewhere where they're freaked out but yeah um i'm not i'm not the expert on that i'm just like sometimes i think some of them could probably benefit from staying put yeah you know uh, i've really it was ray coppinger's book that really started shifting my perspective on that because he has this analogy and i'm sure i'm not getting it 100 right but he's talking about he, he said something like you know, you wouldn't see a fish in the wild and go, oh my God, that fish has to be in a tank, right? Like, <laughs> you, like, like what people don't realize because we, we grew up in the West is that it, dogs do exist as like dogs. basically wild animals, right? You, you, you know, and um, in this country, we have a lot of foxes. We wouldn't dream of catching foxes and then forcing them to live in, in a house. And in a lot of countries, dogs live as essentially wild animals and and there isn't much difference between catching those dogs and catching a fox or catching a fish thinking that you're doing them better by bringing them over here and i think the problem really is we're not very good at differentiating which dogs are going to adapt well and which dogs aren't going to adapt well and and that's not necessarily a, a critique of the rescue as much as it's just very hard when you're catching dogs off the street they're going to be yeah. scared 
you're not really going to know how that dog's going to adapt when you fly them across the world and put them in a home. So there are a lot of dogs that that system really doesn't work well for and some that it does. Yeah, I agree. I agree. My, I always have used this because we are overrun by squirrels here and it's like, are we going to go out and catch all these squirrels and turn them into pets? Um, <laughs> probably not because first of all, that would be crazy. But second of all, where would they all go? And I get that's another, that's another part of that discussion, which is yeah. where do they all go? You sure. know, sure. there's a, uh, there's a lot of dogs already in the pet trade, the not trade, but the pet world here in the United States. And I don't know, that's a whole other big discussion. Yeah. For, it, for it definitely is. Happens. And, and uh, maybe one for another day, just to hop back though, because um, I, I've been experimenting with cat a lot recently. Um, and so I kind of have a, a few geeky technical questions that popped up and i'm sure that anyone that starts doing cat is going to have these questions because i have when we start doing setups oftentimes what i find is you know your your uh, approach maybe we get stuck in that situation as you described where the dog starts reacting a little bit you wait for that that little break in the reaction you go to turn around and walk away, and what does a dog do? Immediately they start barking again, and then you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, what yeah. do I do here? Do I, I commit know. to moving away, or do I uh, stand and wait for, for another break? This is really important, and I totally know what you mean. That's so, it's like, oh, man. <laughs> it's like they're just, like, going for your heels. Um, so what you do is if the if everything's safe if the dog's not just about to have a heart attack and it, you know everybody's okay um just kind of casually turn back around and wait and you may have a bit of an eruption there not ideal again but if you have one it's not the end of the world in fact um sometimes if they have an eruption things start going a lot faster in terms of the, the treatment because they've learned, oh crap, that doesn't work. I shouldn't be, that's not what I want to be doing because they've had the experience of it not working. Um, if you are in a situation like that and they continue reacting for very long um, or you just feel like it's not worth it just cut your losses start over back up anytime in your training when you are not being successful when things aren't going well like if you have two or three trials where you're getting a reaction back off to a point that was way easier either that take a break you know whatever it is let everybody chill regroup have a discussion with the human people and um but back off, like go back to kindergarten a little bit, make it easier because we want to make it easy for them to figure out what we would prefer for them to do. Um, and if it, if you're too close, if you're close enough that they're reacting, um, they're not able to learn and think. Um, and another aspect of that um, is that you have to introduce different movements with your body. So 
way back when I was doing the research, this I would just kind of walk forward and then I would stand there until I got a good response and then I'd walk away. And I'd have a lot of that stuff where I turn around. When I'm turning, I'd get a reaction. Or if I move my arms, I'd get a reaction. If I do something out of the ordinary. So I started, well, here's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what I that started, little noise was. <laughs> um, hello. <laughs> um, I started, um, I've lost my train of thought. Um, you started doing more erratic movements? I started moving. I, I would start kind of early on. And instead of just walking forward and turning around and going back, I'd like slouch a little bit, move around, move my arms. Um, at first, very little, but then gradually build up how much I'm moving around. Like one time I turn away this way, one time I turn away that way. So they start getting used to, you're just generalizing. It's not just when I move in this certain way, but it's when I move in any kind of old way, because you want them to see that humans may turn that way, or they may turn that way, or they may, uh, you know, do a lot of different things. So you kind of loosen up your body language, be stiff sometimes, be loose sometimes, um, and change all of that as you progress so that they don't get stuck on, ah, when they turn around, that's the opportunity to charge. Yeah. Um, so that you're just kind of like all the ways that you move are good. We want to teach, that's what we want to teach the dog that you know, as long as you're not coming at them with a fist, sure, sure. <laughs> it's all good. So uh, the the other question I had was, um, as someone that has spent so many much time doing look at me training, um, when the dog turns and pays attention to me, there's like a uh, deep urge to give the dog a treat. Are we allowed to use food in cat or is that a big no-no? Um. I have, um, I, during the actual, um, approach and retreat part, I wouldn't, but during the breaks between each trial, yeah, I mean, do whatever you want to keep them happy and, and easygoing. But as far as when they're, um, when you're approaching and walking away, you want them to get that whoo that you want them to get the reinforcer from the helper walking away. Uh, and you don't want to distract from that. Okay. Got but then that. in between, you know, if they interact with you between, you can give them treats, you can pet them, um, let them chill for a second and then do the next trial. And um, I wouldn't go overboard with treats, but I, it, you know, it's not going to hurt anything. In fact, huh. Um, in the research before we got into dogs, we were working with some llamas at a zoo that needed to be halter trained. And they were all really fearful of humans because they'd kind of been manhandled. They'd been forcefully handled to get halters on them. So they were very head shy, didn't want anything to do with people. And so the first thing we did, uh, it wasn't my research, it was another another grad student, but um, we went forward a few steps and dropped a, they liked um, 
yams, ch- slight, you know, chunks of, of food. We drop some food and then walk away. Um, but we did what we did was drop the food. And if the animal wanted to come and get the food, they were free to. They never did. What they wanted to do was see us walk away. So what we would do is watch for the llama to look at us or take a step forward, and then we would walk away. And that was when the idea came that the food part really isn't impacting this at all. It's um, it's really not the big part of the learning process. It's the going away. Now they did like food and, and we can, you know, so, and the, the food didn't interfere, but with dogs and food, since, since dogs can get um, protective of food, you know, um, we just found, in fact, I had a couple of dogs, more than a couple of dogs that had not been reactive around food at all before and during the process with getting food they got it got to be connected with the um aggressive behavior somehow so we started we built some problems that that we then had to deal with okay um so it's i find it a little tricky i don't want to say don't give treats especially with a dog that's used to getting a lot of treats for good behavior um but i don't think it's i don't think it's the end of the world i think that it's just as long as you keep it kind of separated yeah um, does that make sense yeah absolutely and um, you know, the other question I was going to ask along the same kind of lines is, you know, if if you're a dog training geek, which you probably are if you're listening to this, and you, you've you studied several different ways of dealing with aggression, you know, maybe you've read all the books, right? And and you think, well, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of bats. I'm doing a little bit of um, look at me or look at that. Uh, I'm doing a bit of construction, constructional aggression treatment, and I'm, I'm mishing and mashing is that a bad thing? Should I be committing to one school of thought? Um, you know, what's your viewpoint on that? I have I have a rather strong viewpoint on that. Um, when you use a lot of different techniques, I find that the dogs that are the most difficult to work with belong to trainers because trainers have tried all the stuff. And a lot of trainers get into training because they find themselves with an aggressive dog and, you know, their family member is now this aggressive dog and they get interested in training. And that's where a lot of trainers start training. Um, But yeah, um, I have, in my experience, dogs that have been trained for aggression in a variety of different ways, they kind of learn all the tricks and they don't really know which response is right in a given situation, so they'll try it all. And I find them much more challenging to work with. A completely naive dog that has never had any training is a piece of cake as far as doing cat with them. Um, Cat will still work, um, when they've had all that, but you're going to have a lot more stimulus conditions to figure out when you, when you, when they've tried a lot. So it's like, they're used to, oh, one dog I remember, um, smooth collie. It, um, 
it had been through a lot of different reactivity types of training um, with its owner, who was a trainer, <laughs> and it had learned to lay perfectly still and just look completely chill until you were right there, and then it would lunge and and snap, um, and scared the crap out of me the first time it did it but she was like yeah he does that because he's learned just to be still and not move around and um and um I'm asking him please move around check it out see what you can do that'll have a different effect on the environment and he's like nope I'm chill I'm not moving so I got up pretty close to him fortunately I had the sense not to go all the way up to him but um he yeah. had learned all the tricks. Yeah. Yeah. That can oftentimes be really difficult when you're working with a dog that has learned not to show the same kind of body language that a lot of dogs do. You were yeah. saying earlier about the way that you like to do your sessions is you like to take a whole day. How does that work? I, um, I, I'm asking more, I guess, from like a business or a coaching perspective. How, how does that work over a whole day? Because I, I must, I'm, a, I'm someone that's done like one hour sessions, like my it's whole career. Hard. It, okay. It it can't always be done because people don't want to spend their whole Saturday with you. It's expensive yeah. Yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's it's my ideal preferred way. It's not the way I usually get to do it. Because I was um, going to say, Kelly, like I find sometimes when, when I do an hour, sometimes I'm almost apologizing to people and saying, hey, I'm sorry, uh, aggression training isn't what you see on TV. This is going to be a little bit boring. <laughs> yeah, it is boring. That's that's a, that is a big issue because because they're just sitting there and like they're like nothing's happening and they have to just be there and they don't. So I'm trying to constantly give them training as I go. But um the advantage of it is sometimes I can get through to the dog so that it's wanting me to pet it by the end of the day in one day. And that's beautiful. Or I, I used to have a greyhound that was my helper dog. And those two would be playing together at the end of the day off leash. And I could show them that all this boring shit, we, all this boring stuff we did. That's all right. You can was, swear. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what was worthwhile because look that your dog could never play with another dog and now now they're playing with my dog um however normally you have to do your hour-long sessions because of modern life it being what it is sure how does how does cat work when you have a dog that isn't fear motivated but is frustration motivated how, oh, how does that work like a dog that um, wants to go and see the other dog desperately and you get all that barking and screaming and and you it's hard to tell sometimes for the owner for an, an owner that's not a professional to tell that that sometimes it's hard even as a professional yeah because it looks bad i mean it looks yeah. it looks rough um i start the procedure just like I would start a cat procedure. But what you're looking for is, and I start far away. If I'm not sure at all, I start far away. Um, just, just to give myself a little bit of working space. But I start the same thing. I start walking closer and then I walk away. 
And usually what you'll see is if the dog, if it's frustration, you start seeing the other dog's body language kind of like get like, um, kind of get hopeful. Like, it's like, oh, I hope he comes closer. And then you turn and walk away and then they get barky and frustrated again and you start watching it's like oh we're seeing more of the bad behavior and less of the good behavior because he really wants the dog to go closer um and a lot of times you can end up letting them interact at the end of that but it it takes a really that i find is it takes um a really skilled eye in fact i was i was invited to work with this one dog up um Ridgeback puppy who was like, I don't know, 10, 11 months old. And um, I get in there with my greyhound and I'm like, um, this is not aggression. After At first it looked very aggressive. It was very, they're already a Ridgeback. They're big and they're tough. And, um, but then I realized that the closer Bravo and I got to him, the happier his body language got, you know, the looser, he got looser and goofier. And, um, um, my greyhound who has deceased, but she was like the best at reading body language. And I always took the cue from her when I could, but she was like, I want to go over there and see this guy. Cause she totally knew that he wasn't aggressive. And when we did, they're rolling on the ground and playing and having the best time. But I had been invited to work with them by their trainer that they were doing sports training with. And um, she was not convinced, even after seeing all of that, she was not convinced that it wasn't aggressive, even though she saw them play together off leash. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's kind of tricky. Um, I think part of it in that case was that she didn't work with aggressive dogs. She worked with sports dogs. And while you see sports dogs, you're not doing the same kinds of evaluation of their behavior and that sort of thing. Um, and what I was seeing was this very confused puppy who'd never been allowed to be off leash with other dogs. He was being, he was being brought up as a sports and confirmation dog and so he was all very it it was all about rules and doing things in a certain way and he really just wanted to play sometimes (laughs) you know i i it's yeah i i love that story and i do feel like it is a skill determining the motivation just based on sight and i feel like it's very hard to explain that sometimes there are a few giveaways i think i think frustration dogs uh, dogs with frustration issues tend to be way more high pitched in their uh, yeah, yeah. in their reactions but and he totally was come to think yeah. of it yeah but um but i do think there's a, a skill to it and i've had the same thing happen and and oftentimes those are the cases which make you look like a magician they make you look so good where it's like <laughs> I, I had a awesome. case I had a case recently <laughs> with a greyhound as well, funnily enough, which had come from a rescue center and the rescue had said to the owners, keep him away from other dogs. He's really aggressive with other dogs. And uh, they decided to contact me anyway. They wanted to kind of work for his issues. And, uh, you know, like within five minutes, he was playing with another dog because it was just obvious to someone that has been doing it for a long time is frustration, right? Frustration. But, 
but even once you've even had that realization and it's like, okay, we can socialize him. That's not an issue. We still have this problem where it's like, we've got him on the lead and hey, when he sees a dog cross the street, he's barking because he wants to go over there. So we still have a little bit of a problem. Do you still use cat for that or do you switch to a different method? I would switch to a positive reinforcement method sure. Um, for that. Sure. Yeah. And on, on that same note, are there types of aggression which you actually don't think cat is appropriate for? Like one that comes to mind, which would be like a... Um, I, I struggle to think how it would apply would be like resource guarding, for example. But but maybe I'm just I'm maybe you'll tell me of a way of doing it which works well. Yeah, um resource guarding you can do it's kind of two things, right? There's positive reinforcement, it's my food, and it's negative reinforcement because there's this other dog that wants to get my food. So it's protection. So you can kind of, you can do it the usual way with um, doling out treats and, you know, like putting food in the bowl or, or whatever your technique is, but you can also do um, cat, frankly, um, cat's probably a little more complicated to do in that situation. Um, is it is it a situation where you would switch to a, a, a different method? It would depend on the family and the dog to an extent. You'd probably get faster results with cat, but um, as far as maintenance and managing it, it probably would be easier for a family to just have the skills to um, work with their food bowl and all that kind of stuff and also feed them separately. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. that i mean well, some, well, I some of those basic of, management things sometimes yeah. they don't go away you still have to do those and the majority of resource guarding cases i see are um dogs that guard things from people and it will be a situation where the dog will steal basically anything that gets on the floor and then they won't give it back to the person and, and the concern is that they're going to steal something that's dangerous or uh, that the dog really can't have and those are the majority i would say of my resource guarding cases um, yeah, but I, huh. um, I would do a positive reinforcement sure, type thing with sure, that usually, sure. unless it has to do more with the person approaching the stuff. Um, and I, but like you know, just a lot of trade, trade, and um, I'll give you a better treat if you give me what you've got. That kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. I just I just wondered if if there was like a, a cat version of it, but that's that's fine. There could there there could be, and I have done um, some with that. Like if if the bigger issue is somebody approaching them, then we can do it with the person. Mm -hmm. um, but if the main issue is wanting the stuff, then do it with stuff. So it's a, it's got a little overlap in it. So it's got a little positive and a little negative reinforcement involved in it. Um, another question I wanted to ask you, and I hope I don't make you groan with this question, but a lot of people I feel like, not dog owners, but dog trainers at the moment are very, very conscious. I feel like it's a constant discussion about ethics, about, um, you know, we have obviously the kind of surge in popularity of uh, least intrusive, minimally aversive trainers. Um, how does this fit into the picture? 
how do we, because a lot of people might think, well, shouldn't we first start off with a more conventional positive reinforcement method? Because that is the, the maybe the least intrusive, I guess, or a less intrusive way of doing it. What are your thoughts on this? Um, you know, when I, when I went to um, school for behavior analysis, we studied human behavior. We studied all the kinds of behavior because it was behavior as a science. And so um, one of the first things we learned even as undergrads was least invasive, minimally aversive. Um, that is part uh, and parcel of what behavior analysts code of ethics is. Um, <laughs> The, um, um, I hesitate, I try to avoid using the term negative reinforcement until we get into um, a further discussion because it's so emotionally charged for so many people. But um, in a lot of ways, yes, it is correct that we don't want to use negative reinforcement for a lot of new training. Um, at the same time, how humane is it really to, let me give this kind of corny example, but say you've gone into a, a store, a corner store with your friend and you're, uh, you're shopping for whatever you're shopping for and a guy comes in the door with a gun. This is the United States, right? You have guns everywhere. Um, <laughs> so you're... <laughs> Um, you go in, somebody comes in with a gun and you freak out and you're like, you slam to the ground and you're trying to escape out the back door. But your owner's like, no, let me give you this food. You'll calm down in a minute. And they're trying to feed you candy. It's kind of like that. It's like, no, what I want to do is get away from him. I don't care about candy. I don't care about, you know, you can give me any kind of food I want, but I'm going to spit it out because I really need to get away from this guy right now. He's the danger. And so um, it's the same kind of thing. I want the dog to get what it believes it absolutely needs right now. This dog feels that it needs to get away from the bad guy, even though we, you and I know it's not a bad guy, the dog thinks it is, it feels that it is. And so its emotional system is reacting like this is danger to them. So I wanna make sure that they get it, that this they're, they're not in danger and that they have things in their repertoire right now that they can do that will ameliorate the danger that it will lessen the danger and make the other really horribly scary thing go away so that they have the brains in them to do some training for treats and that sort of thing. Um, if we are constantly trying to make them learn to not be afraid because we're giving them food, we're using a skill that can work. We're using a tool that can work to an extent um, but it never really convinces them that <laughs> it, never, it, hi, it never really convinces them that, um, that the world is safe, that, yeah. that we're safe around the other thing. Um, I'm not saying it never does. I mean, it, classical conditioning is, you know, going to do some of that 
I'm going to have to trade him in on a smaller version. (laughs) Um, um, I I think that's a really good argument. Actually, if you get an opportunity, um, Lauren Novak, do you know her, Lauren? No, I don't. Novak. She is a trainer in New York City and she's doing, she started a podcast recently um, and she'll be talking. She's, she's, I don't know if they're recorded or where to get them, but I can get that information to you. But she um, is doing a lot of interviews about things like this um, so that um, she, she's talking about um, are the four quadrants really um, what we need to be thinking about in terms of humane um, behavior, behavior, humane training. Um, how should we be thinking about the quadrants? Should we be thinking about them as good and bad? Or should we be thinking of them as how to use each of them appropriately? Um, for example, one of the things that I... Um, teach when I talk to people about these kinds of things is um, um, oh crap my cat is not helping my train of thought that's okay I, I think you've made no no you, you think you're making some really interesting points and uh, I feel like yeah that that's a whole subject to explore isn't it the, the, it is and it's beautiful yeah. and if you get an opportunity to hear some of Lauren's um, interviews i'll be doing one with her on cat before long as well too um but um she's talking about these behavior analytic concepts and how we may have um overstepped or like we've gotten too addicted to the words that are involved like negative reinforcement is bad but if when i here's what i was going to say what i teach Um, Like when I was working in shelters and um, that sort of thing um, is that if I'm going to teach a brand new behavior, um, like I want to teach a dog to sit, I don't need to turn on a shock collar and wait for him to sit and then turn it off so that I can use negative reinforcement. I can give him treats. Obviously, treats are the humane way to teach a new behavior that the dog is not doing yet on cue. Obviously, treats are the better way to go. Um, If I've got a dog that's fearful, I don't want to put pain into the situation. So I don't want to use a shock collar or force or anything with a cat, with a dog that is afraid. Are you getting tempted to shock your cat at this? <laughs> yeah, I'm getting really close. He's right here, and I'm like, buddy, <laughs> I promise I won't. Um, um, but if the animal learned the behavior, it, the, the behavior is already in the animal's repertoire. The animal's already barking and growling. We know that something... Um, that behavior got reinforced somehow. That behavior is in his repertoire for some reason. And the reason wasn't that he got food for it. The reason was that he got other things to go away. So we're going directly to the root of the behavior so that we can 
fix it faster. We can fix it more efficiently because that's what the animal really wants. Sure. So um, one last question and then, and then we'll wrap up. How does cat work outside of the setups, right? We've spoken a lot today about these setups that we can run so we can start teaching the dog to get over the reactivity. How does it work when I actually go on a walk with my dog? Yeah. Um, in the early stages, you have to be um, cautious. Try to walk at times when things are not so busy. I know that's easier said than done if you work in a, if you live in a city or, and your dog is going to have to be walked on the street. Um, but at first try to control your, his exposure. Um, but then you just start doing a little um, change up. So you start changing up, like you start um, maybe walk across a parking lot away from where the people are, but the people are on the other side so that he can see them. And you start gradually getting closer and more involved. Um, be willing to talk to other people that you run into um, so that um, they don't do something inappropriate, although you can't always control them. But it's really a matter of gradually building up and increasing that um, generalization. So in the setups, we were talking about how the 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 trigger right is actually moving away when the when the dog deescalates. When you're out and about for real life, does that switch sides? Does it become a situation where you're moving away from the trigger? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you can it, totally do that. Um, we didn't do that as part of the actual research years, like back in 2007. Um, but we are six or whenever it was. Um, but in real life, when you're out there, um, you will have to turn away. Um, and, you know, just use good handling skills to get. I would train the dog in advance certain things like. Um, a quick U-turn, give them a cue for a U-turn, um, teaching them to come face to face with you for emergency. You know, like if they, if you need to get their face facing you because something's going to happen if they keep looking that direction. Sure. So you want to train them all those basic skills, like do this quick U-turn with me, come and do a face to face with me. Um, so they need to have those skills in their repertoire, but when you're in the training process, you want to let them look and let them make the choice of what to do. Okay. All right. Well, thanks Kelly. I feel like you've given us so much value today and like opened a whole new world of dealing with dogs with aggression. Where can people find out about you and your book and, and what you're doing? Um, I am, um, retired at the moment um so you can find the book on here it is now you can find it here so um, what's it called it, for people that are just listening to the audio it's uh um turning fierce dogs friendly by kelly snyder and it's um this book is geared towards um it, um it, it's geared towards pet owners so it has a lot of things that um, perhaps professionals would know, but it gives a lot of tools for for how they should handle situations and that sort of thing. Um, it's available in the United States. I know it's available on most booksellers like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and you can probably find it pretty easily online. Um, 
And um, you can always reach me too at hello at kellysnyder.com. So if you want to email me that way, that's good. All right, fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Kelly. Honestly, I've loved speaking to you today. It's been great. Awesome. It was great talking to you too. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, don't forget to share it to your Instagram stories and leave me a question about your dog or a particular dog training situation at www.speakpipe.com slash nickbenger and of course be sure to check out kelly's book turning fierce dogs friendly that's all for this episode and i'll see you in the next one